So, Jay, does Strife ever join teams? I mean, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who plays well with others, right? He'll team up occasionally, Miles, if objectives align. For example, when he and Bishop joined up during Messiah War to kill Cable in Apocalypse. Oh, and once time-traveling despot Kang the Conqueror managed to recruit Strife onto an interdimensional team to... Take over the universe? Save the world. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 339 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome for a grab bag full of punching. That's right, we are we are making a, a rare swerve this week and we are covering a solo book. Some. Some, yeah. I mean, that's Wolverine, and that's mainly because it crosses over with uh, Uncanny X-Men. But still, the point is there's a great deal of punching, and some of that punching also involves claws that are made of bone, but seem extremely tough, as if the writers and artists sometimes forget that they're not metal anymore. Sometimes curved, too, which really worries me. Oh yeah, those have got to really hurt coming out. Or just being sheathed inside Logan's forearms. They wouldn't fit. I have a lot of questions. Some of my questions are also about why Wolverine no longer has a nose, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. You know, reasons. Reasons. So before we jump in, congratulations on surviving the horrific heat wave. Uh, yeah, as we record this, it is Wednesday, June 30th, and uh, Portland is back to a relatively normal summer temperature, if a little bit hotter than usual, and it was... Uh, it was rough. I, I felt very fortunate to be able to keep myself safe, and I know that wasn't the case with everybody, and we're sort of just starting to understand how bad it was for a lot of people and some people that didn't make it through, so it's it's not great. Um, So yeah, climate change, it's super real, guys. It's not good. We should, we should fix that, please, people in charge of things. So weird to me that that isn't ever a significant factor in the, the dark post-apocalyptic X-Men futures. It's true, yeah. I mean, giant robots are no good, but honestly, like, half of the world being underwater and the climate becoming horrible is maybe way worse. Yeah, I was gonna say, humanity seems far, far more, well, either efficient or laissez-faire about finding ways to kill itself off. Yeah. I get it, though. I mean, in terms of a comic book plotline, like, if you're gonna have a dark, humanity-created future, then having the uh, manifestation thereof be robots means that your heroes can punch that future. It's a little hard to punch melted glaciers. Like, you can, but it doesn't really accomplish much. You can punch the sun. You can punch the sun. That jerk. Doesn't go well, but you can do it. It's true, it's true. But anyway, we are tangenting a lot, admittedly for, I think, good reasons, but we are here to talk about X-Men stuff, and I think before we talk about X-Men stuff, we should talk about what happened previously on X-Men. Okay, first of all, fighting the sun is a very X-Men thing to do. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're Sentinels, and it comes full circle. But anyway, as you were saying, uh, remember Fatal Attractions? We're going to go back to that for a second. That was that 1993 X-Line crossover where Magneto came back from the dead, interrupted a funeral, yelled at the X-Men, then used his magnetism to mess up Earth's electromagnetic field, and ripped the adamantium out of Wolverine's skeleton. Uh, yeah, Wolverine mostly recovered, but as he did, he gradually became more feral. The uh, adjective, not the X-Force character. The 
this whole plot line resulted in him eating KFC while gradually smelling worse and worse in the forest outside the Xavier Institute. He also started having trouble suppressing his violent side, his more bestial impulses. And let's take it back a year earlier to Executioner's Song, the 1992 X-Line crossover, where Cable's clone slash Apocalypse's future heir Strife did a number of bad things while whining about how nobody understood him and trying to feed his parents baby food. Well, Strife died, or at least apparently died. No one ever really dies. Likewise, Apocalypse. But both of them left behind um, complex legacies. Yes, and not just the legacy virus. I mean, that too, but that part's not relevant right now. We're talking about different legacies in this arc. So to cover the books we're going to be talking about today, we need to go back a little bit to Wolverine number 100. What happened there? Oh, a lot of things, uh, mainly punching and explosions. But the short version is that while he was on a mission, the nature of which isn't particularly relevant right now, Logan was captured by Genesis. That's Tyler Dayspring, right? Uh, yes, as opposed to the console that does what Nintendo don't. Who is also Tolliver? Yes, who is also Cable's son from the future, who kind of sucks, but mainly because he was captured and brainwashed and traumatized by the aforementioned Strife. Ooh, so he's kind of Apocalypse's grandkid. Eh, something along those lines. Interestingly enough, if that name sounds familiar, uh, not just because, you know, it's got Sonic the Hedgehog and Toe Jam and Earl, it's because Genesis is also the name of Apocalypse's recently revealed wife from many thousands of years ago. Isn't it also the name that Evan Subinor was going by? I think it is. I guess if you're related to Apocalypse, you just have to be named Genesis, regardless of that relationship. Well, yeah, it creates a kind of fundamental contrast. I guess so. But part of what this Genesis, Tyler Dayspring, was doing in attempting to be Apocalypse's heir-slash-replacement was leading the Dark Riders. Part of it was also making new horsemen of the Apocalypse. And he figured it would be super cool to have Wolverine be death. To which end, he was gonna kidnap him, brainwash him, and give him his adamantium back. As for where that adamantium would come from, since, like we mentioned earlier, Magneto ripped it out a while back... It came from Logan's foe, Cyber, who had adamantium skin, until Genesis sicked a bunch of mutant masticating beetles on Cyber, leaving only his metal. That shouldn't work if it was his skin. I guess his skin was just adamantium-laced, so maybe they were, like, real small and got in through little cracks and crannies. I'm still calling foul there. I mean, honestly, let's be real, the idea of adamantium-laced skin only vaguely makes sense anyway, so we're already suspending our disbelief. I mean, adamantium in general is pretty nonsense stuff. Fair enough. Well, Cannonball showed up to rescue Wolverine, but it went badly because Cannonball's just a total new green child, an amateur, a country bumpkin who definitely never led any super teams for years and years. Well, also, he was massively, massively, massively out of his depth and outpowered, even by that standard. I know, I'm just mad at the way Cannonball's written these days. So, to save Cannonball, Wolverine used sheer willpower to force the adamantium, and thus also the brainwashing, I guess, out of his body so that he could escape and save Cannonball's life. For some reason, this dialed his animalistic traits up to 11. Um... 
making them really, really drastic. Basically, he has to fully give in to his feral side to be strong enough, and now he looks kind of like a werewolf man with no nose. He's got a really iffy haircut, and his whereabouts are unknown. This is the beginning of a very strange era for Wolverine, as he's gradually trying to regain his humanity, and eventually it just sort of stops? Like, he gets his nose back as he learns to be human again? I, I don't really understand how it works, but the thing is, it actually works kind of well. Like, the Larry Hama run of Wolverine during this era is kind of genuinely good. I, I really wish I'd had the forethought to come up with something funny to say about Roald Dahl here. Oh yeah! Yeah, Roald Dahl lost his nose, didn't he? Didn't Tycho Brahe also lose his nose? Okay. Yeah, yeah, Tycho, Tycho Brahe lost um, his nose in a duel and had a prosthetic nose made of silver and gold. Because he was a styling motherfucker. As opposed to Roald Dahl, who was getting adamantium injected into his body by Cable's son and had to force it out to save his teammate, and then his nose disappeared. Apparently he was also pretty racist, which is a shame because I really like his books. God damn it, I hate it when that happens, which is often. You know, so much would be solved if people could just not be terrible for like 10 minutes. Dear people, freaking quit it, come on. And that leads us to Uncanny X-Men number 332, The Road to Casablanca, written by Scott Lobdell, speaking kind of of, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Team Bucci, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. And you know how we just recapped Wolverine number 100? Well, so does Professor X at the beginning of this issue, and he is making his case to Zoe Culloden, who's a spandex-clad agent of Landau, Luckman, and Lake, a group that we've seen before. So Landau, Luckman, and Lake are an interdimensional, intergalactic holding company and law firm. Um, they are all over the place. They've got their fingers in basically every pie in the multiverse. They're kind of great, and what I really appreciate is that Chris Claremont first introduced them in his early issues of Wolverine back in the 80s, and just gave us the slightest hint of what their deal was. And all we knew was that Wolverine was hanging out with some people for whom time didn't really work quite right, and we didn't know why. Honestly, I think they're one of those concepts that works a little better when you know less, but they're still a lot of fun in this era. They really are, yeah. And uh, Culloden, I believe, goes by the Expediter, doesn't she? She does indeed. And the Expediter yells at Xavier about him being a self-righteous jerk and meddling in things bigger than himself, and then proceeds to shoot Xavier in the head in order to protect Landau, Luckman, and Lake's secrets. Now, of course, it turns out that this was not really Xavier who was killed, and in fact, the whole thing was a mental scenario that he set up, um, and instead he freezes her in place and tells her, I'll make this easy. I lost Sabretooth. I will not lose Wolverine. Man, if I were Wolverine and I weren't entirely feral, I'd be super offended um, at the, the implicit equation of those two. Yeah, legit. But I like this. I like this take on Xavier. I mean, obviously we know he's going to end up kinda sorta being Onslaught, the big bad that everything's been leading up to. His dark side, essentially, is Onslaught. And so having these scenes where Xavier is just getting increasingly desperate and increasingly cold in that desperation, having, you know, all the right reasons for doing things, but getting a little bit more cutthroat in the way he handles those situations, I think it actually kind of works as foreshadowing. 
Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, outside, Cyclops, Phoenix, Iceman, and Cannonball are hanging out near Xavier's Rolls-Royce. Hey, wait a minute. Isn't that what they used to drive around way back in the Silver Age? It is. Huh. So, Jean actually knows Lando Luckman and Lake. Um, back in Wolverine number 97, she traveled through these, like, freestanding dimensional Lando Luckman and Lake doors while helping Logan track down Cyber, and during this time, she got hit on by a ray-gun-toting old-timey Cockney child. Larry Hama comics, as we have mentioned, like, when we covered that ghost pirate issue, uh, they're weird and they're great. Yeah, Hama is really, really delightful. He goes all in in ways that very, very few superhero writers do. Like, he just, he is, he is full, he fully embraces the wildest ends of the potential of the genre, I think. I mean, this is the guy that actually managed to come up with a plot for the G.I. Joe toy line and made it kind of awesome, so, you know, that makes sense. Right on. Cannonball feels really guilty because... You know, his take is, if Logan hadn't had to save him to save Cannonball, then Logan wouldn't have ended up all animalistic. And I really appreciate that Iceman's attempt to make Cannonball feel better is to basically say, yeah, well, at least you weren't on the Champions. That's such a massive non-sequitur, and I really appreciated it. I mean, that's Bobby. He's like, no, you don't understand. It was me and Angel and then, like, Black Widow and Hercules and Ghost Riders, and we were in L.A.? What the hell? And I can only imagine Cannonball being like, dude, how... I mean, thanks, but what? Why? Why are you telling me this? How is this relevant, sir? <laughs> oh, Iceman. Well, anyway, as that awkwardness is going on, Jean gets a telepathic signal, and off they go. Well, specifically, she gets a telepathic signal of Logan. She's been trying, scanning and trying to find him, and she finally picks up some vestige of what's left of his mind. And as all this is going on, we are getting this glorious Joe Matarera art of Logan leaping around these desert cliffs. And so I feel like here we should talk a little bit more about his design, not just the lack of nose, although also the lack of nose. Yeah, so he he looks he's recognizable as himself sort of, but he's he's much much more exaggerated than usual. This is this is a place where I think Madrera's art is is great where I, I don't think there are many artists who could have handled this as well as he did because he's already got such a cartoonishly exaggerated style that when he turns it up even further it really gets kind of the uncanny effect that, that this is shooting for. Yeah, like, Logan is this this hulking brute. Like, he's always been muscular and squat, but now he's even more so. And I think really where the look comes across most, aside from the, again, bizarre lack of nose, he's just got these nostril slits, basically, is his hair. Like, his giant eyebrows and his arm hair and his sideburns, they look less like hair and more like just patches of animal fur, and his teeth are enormous and pointed and yellowed, and his eyes are red. And it works, actually. And just as narration tells us that he no longer thinks about things like right and wrong, just about curiosity and just, yeah, what smells interesting, he falls through a trapdoor with a an impassioned... Wait, was he just using his animal voice to say free will? Like, was he just responding to that narration? Or or maybe he's a Rush fan? Both of those things seem fairly unlikely to me. Maybe. Anyway, he falls into an ancient temple-looking place, and he meets a guy that we're meeting for the first time in this issue named Ozymandias. Oh, that guy. 
So you will get to know Ozymandias real well over the years. He is one of Apocalypse's longtime frenemies. Um, at this point, his body and clothes are, are made of animated stone. So we talked about Ozymandias way back in episode number 110, way back in the day, when we discussed the Rise of Apocalypse miniseries, which actually comes out five months after this story does. I'm trying to figure out how to do the short version of Ozymandias' deal. Do you want to give it a shot, Jay? I believe in you. Okay. So, back in ancient Egypt, Ozymandias was the pharaoh Ramatut's grand vizier slash general. Ramatut is actually one of the many incarnations of the time-traveling Kang the Conqueror. We're just not going to worry about that right now because it's way too complicated. But Ramatut saw this up-and-coming blue guy, Ensabanur, as a threat. So he had Ozymandias do very, very bad things to Ensabanur. Like, very bad things. Ozymandias is terrible. And so, when Ensabanur found a celestial ship, you know, giant space god, celestials, he used its power to transform Ozymandias into a stone slave, and himself became the apocalypse that we know and love. Ozymandias like everyone else during this era, gets his own font and his own speech bubbles. His speech balloons are, are sort of a dark grayish brown, which I get what they're shooting for. They're going for, for sort of a stone look. But if you're putting black text on top of a background and you're printing it on medium low quality paper, it's not a great choice for readability. That's fair, and it's kind of a weird font, too. Like, it's uh, an almost cuneiform-esque font, I guess. Like, it looks like it's been carved into stone. It looks cool, but yeah, it's hard to read. You know what it is, Jay, I think, is that Ozymandias just mumbles. I mean, he's made of stone. He probably can't enunciate very well. Oh, like, like, what's his name, the mummy? Exactly. Murmur. Yeah. It actually really works, though. I mean... Logan has just fallen down this random trap door, and Logan's not verbal at this point. He's purely animalistic. And so Ozymandias, as he wonders, like, have I been down here so long that humanity has changed this much? He is just poetically, extensively rambling at Logan, who's just sort of staring at him in utter incomprehension. And it's a, it's a nice contrast. Like, we have Logan, who's all furry and his costume's ripped up, and he's not able to use words. And Ozymandias, who is this... Very, very proper-looking, archaic gentleman who just will not shut up. Well, he's been stuck down there by himself for millennia. All he has to do is, is carve this giant pillar with his chaotic visions of the future. And that's what, he, that's what he has been doing for thousands of years. Oh, man. That, that sounds really boring, Jay. Uh, well... Again, you can't really fault him for, for going all flowery and poetic at Logan. No, no, I, I get that. As things are getting a little less locked down around here, I find myself uh, not really ever shutting up whenever I'm around somebody. That's fair. See, similar deal. Uh, that makes sense. Well, this can't go on for too long because suddenly it's the X-Men to the rescue. Hooray! Uh, cannonball, you know, comes in with, with a, a, a cannonball typical... Thank gosh we found Wolverine. Iceman replies, Gosh? Who says gosh anymore? 
I mean, honestly, Cannonball probably doesn't. The way he's been written for years and years and years is somebody who certainly still has a bit of a Kentucky accent, but has always been, you know what? It's just, it's a dead horse. We're just beating a dead horse at this point. You know, this horse sucks. This horse does suck. This, this dead horse is a jerk. You know who's also dead aside from that horse? Apocalypse, which the X-Men tell Ozymandias. Like, dude, your boss is dead. Maybe you don't have to do this anymore? Ozymandias is like, think that's gonna stop him? Pretty much. He uh, defied Apocalypse once, back in the Rise of Apocalypse miniseries that hasn't been published yet, and he's not about to do so again. So he animates his carvings by throwing his hammer at them, like if a hammer brother and Magikoopa had a baby. I don't know what that means, but I'm okay with that. Excellent. So this means we have lots of stone heroes and villains to fight our team, including a stone Nate Gray, who Gene doesn't recognize and just telekinetically crushes immediately, which for some reason I find hilarious. Story of his life. And during the fight, Cyclops gets knocked down a bottomless pit, which leads us to Wolverine number 101, The Helix of an Age Foretold. Written by Larry Hama, penciled by Val Simex. I'm so sorry, Val, I'm probably mangling your last name. Inked by Chad Hunt, colored by Joe Roses, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, immediately Wolverine jumps in after Cyclops, and because Cyclops is flailing, manages to make himself more aerodynamic. But not before Cyclops attempts and fails to slow himself down using his optic blasts. And I'm gonna, gonna linger on this for a second, because A, Cyclops nonsense, but B... This actually has continuity context, um, because what this means is that he's running on significantly reduced power, because we have seen him effectively use his optic blasts to slow falls before, most notably the first time that he used them unconsciously when he and Alex fell out of the plane, but a couple times since as well. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. And... Maybe him being so stunned and weak from getting whomped on by rocky heroes and villains is uh, part of why he accidentally hits his head on a rock, which looks real bad. But you know what? Let's just let Larry Hama, our narrator, tell us about it. In the depths of the chasm, a jutting fracture of schist, untouched since the Mesozoic era meets its destiny, and wreaks a subtle change upon a section of cerebral cortex that was damaged once before. I mean, this sounds like it should be a really big deal, right? I mean, we all know what's up with Cyclops' brain. I mean, do we really, though? I don't know. He got brain injured when he fell out of the plane, and that's why he can't control his blasts. Okay, I have some opinions about traumatic brain injury in superheroes and the fact that, to my knowledge, the whole cumulative TBI thing has only been acknowledged once in an X-book. Um, but that's probably a rant better saved for a later day. Um, yeah, in this case, it comes up once and everyone promptly forgets about it. There are so many dropped plot threads in the 90s. So many. So many. Well, Logan, who has made himself more aerodynamic because animals are faster at falling, you know, based on physics, uh, he catches Scott before they hit the bottom of the bottomless pit and manages to grab onto the wall with his surprisingly tough bone claws. His surprisingly tough and hooked bone claws. Like we were saying, that's gotta hurt. And then there are OJ. OJ, it's those panels. It's those panels. Yeah, it gets weird. So, Logan, who's looking very cartoony at this point, with his lack of nose and exaggerated fur and strangely animalistic features, 
he looks at Scott really worried and then just sticks out his gigantic tongue and wetly slurps Scott's face to wake him up. And it is hilarious. Yeah, Scott briefly wakes up, is confused and promptly drops unconscious again. Um, But yeah, this is you see these panels quoted fairly frequently online. And there's a reason for that. And that is that this is this is the point at which the book has just gone full on weird fanfic AU. Yeah, and like I don't even think we're talking slash fiction unless a person has very specific tastes. It's just bizarre. No, it's like this this feels like a prolonged what if that someone writes like ten different novel length things about in, in their universe where Wolverine goes feral and licks people. Right? Okay, I feel like this is a good opportunity for us to discuss the way Logan comes off. Like Obviously, he's supposed to be animalistic, and that's supposed to be something that we worry a lot about, because, you know, he's not the Logan we know and love. It's also kind of goofy, and I don't know. How do you feel about the balance between those? Honestly, I don't feel like you can prolong one without falling into the other. So I kind of appreciate that Hama just leans into it. He does. And like I said, the issues where Wolverine is working to regain his humanity are genuinely good overall. So it works. Like, it actually is emotionally resonant. It's worth noting, I think, that this isn't played the way, for example, um, it goes down when, when Beast starts to lose his reasoning and intelligence. This, this, this isn't flowers for Algernon. This is like... Wolverine kind of turns into a golden retriever. You know, that's actually a really good way of putting it, at least in this story. I mean, I think just because of those panels, this is maybe the silly apex of this entire arc, even right at its beginning. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. It's it's earnest, like it's played totally straight, but there it certainly mm. is. Yup. What it kind of made me think of, though, and we'll be talking more about uh, Wild Childs in the next story we cover, but... I feel like as much as X-Factor's been emphasizing how Wild Child should look animalistic and ugly, like, drawing him this way could actually really work. Oh yeah, I see what you mean there. Hmm. But regardless, Logan does manage his lick having failed to fully revive Cyclops to drag Cyclops back up to the surface and back up to the fight. And the fight takes up most of the issue. Like, it's a well-done fight scene, but we've just seen so many versions of the heroes fight fake versions of characters you remember. I mean, we saw that just now in X-Factor's Uh-Oh Hut, you know? We uh, saw that in the X-Men vs. Clandestine miniseries. It's just been done so many times, so not that it's bad, it's just unremarkable. And even even the bit of what's supposed to be portentous in this this issue, which is what you know Scott catches a glimpse of a carving of Professor Xavier that implies a that Apocalypse respects him and b that Apocalypse has been watching the X Men for a long time, falls pretty flat because there's nothing particularly revelatory about any of this. I, I do appreciate. I, I will we'll come back to Wolverine and say I, I do appreciate that he is now basically canonically Kate beaten Wolverine. Oh, God, you're totally right. Like, scratching up the couch and, like, having Gene spray a water bottle at him and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's just straight up this era. Listeners, if you're unfamiliar with the cartoonist Kate Beaton, do yourself a favor and check her work out. It is phenomenal. It's hilarious. And I'll see if I can dig up those strips and link to them in the visual companion to this episode. Worthwhile. But 
speaking of Wolverine and speaking of the arc that follows from this in Hama's series, at the end of number 100, we saw a character being sent after Logan to help rehabilitate him. And that character is kind of a surprising one. That character is the Daredevil character, Electra, you know, the Greek ninja, Electronachios. Right. She shows up here as well. She secretly helps with a fight while keeping herself in the shadows. And she's going to be a major player in the Wolverine uh, solo series for a while. And it's kind of awesome. Electra and Wolverine actually in an alternate universe, that being Earth 982, ended up having a kid together. Her name is Wild Thing, and she's kind of great. She had her own series briefly. That's that's quite a name. It is, but, you know, it was the 90s. These things happened. Uh, Speaking of the 90s, in the 90s, there were, of course, a lot of Marvel action figures. And I think we were both at the thrift store together when we saw a Psylocke one and an Electra one and realized that they were just color swaps of each other. Yeah, they were were exactly the same sculpt. Yeah, their outfits are just so goddamn similar. Like, what is it about one pieces with tall boots and random strappy bits that was a thing in the 90s and the 80s, I guess, for Electra? I mean, I guess they're sexy for some value of the term. Mm. Well, what I will say is those are absolutely reasonable outfits for ninjas who definitely uh, don't want to have any visual contrast on their bodies as they are being stealthy, and certainly wouldn't want to wear bright colors. Right. Maybe it's like Gambit's metal boots. Maybe it's like a challenge level thing. Oh, that could very well be. Yeah, just to show how badass they are. I'm into that. Exactly. Well, anyway, during the fight, Logan is being really protective of Scott. Like, he's shielding Scott from the Stone Warrior's projectiles with his body. He's carrying Scott around by Scott's chest strap in his mouth like he's carrying a kitten around. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, but... At the same time, it's also genuinely endearing. Like, if we assume that Logan losing his humanity and intelligence just brings him down to the very core of his identity, and that core is protecting his friend, even though they haven't always got along, like, that's kind of endearing. It's really sweet. And also really funny. Both of those things. Great combination. So Ozymandias realizes that he's losing, and thus he knocks down his giant prophecy column that he's been working on for presumably thousands of years to crush the team, which shatters it. The column, not the team. The team is intact. Uh, They're fine. They're fine. And yeah, we close with, like you were alluding to, Jay, Scott talking about the very meaningful, mysterious thing he saw at the bottom of the column, which doesn't really go anywhere because it's the 90s. But Wolverine is back with the X-Men. We now have Wolverine's new animally status quo established. We've met Ozymandias, thus leading into some later apocalypse stuff. And honestly, some kind of cool plot stuff is going on here. Speaking of cool stuff, the second storyline we're going to be looking at today features one of my sort of surprise favorite characters from this era, and that is Shard. Shard's really great. She seems to get a lot of shit from the X-Men fandom, and I don't know why, because she's pretty cool. I'll fight him. I'll fight them all. Fight for her holographic holo honor. Oh, yeah. So, we are still staying on the Uncanny X-Men train. This is Uncanny X-Men Annual 1996, but it feels almost more like an X-Factor Annual, to me at least. Yeah, definitely. And that's largely due to Shard's presence, because she's been hanging out with X-Factor for a fairly long time. Um, She 
died in the future. So it, let's let's go back. Let's start with Bishop and sort of work up to Shard as we're giving the background here, because I, I feel like you, you got to start with Bishop for this one. Oh, yeah. Lucas is Bishop 101. Shard Bishop is Bishop 201. So Lucas Bishop was a member of the Xavier Security Enforcers, or originally and hilariously, the Xavier School Enforcers. All monitors of the future. Exactly. They're mutant cops in the future who hunt down mutant criminals. Uh, roughly 70 years into the future, that math gets wonky immediately. We'll talk about that. But Bishop came back to the present day after chasing some mutant criminals through a time portal and being stuck in the present, joined the X-Men soon after. Along with a truly exceptional mullet, huge guns, and energy channeling powers, Bishop brought with him a bracelet containing a recording of the personality and memories of his dead sister and former commanding officer, Shard. Which the mutant inventor Forge was able to turn into a seemingly sentient hard light hologram of Bishop's sister. Holo Shard proceeded to get Holo killed twice, but not before joining X Factor and bonding with her teammate Wildchild. Shard is back once again now, though, having reappeared in X Factor's base while the rest of the team was off fighting a genetically modified, predator looking mutant called the Hound, who shares a name with a particularly nasty part of the X Men's future and the Bishop siblings past. Which we'll get to shortly in the pages of the Uncanny X-Men 1996 annual Destiny's Child. Written by Terry Cavanaugh and Howard Mackey, penciled by David Perrin and Nick Nazo, inked by Art Tiber and Harry Candelario, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, the first and most notable thing about this, you, you talked about dropped plot threads, and this annual starts by returning to one I really never expected to see again, and that is a guy named Preacher. Uh, yeah, we last saw him in the Uncanny 1995 annual, the last annual for this book. Right, and we covered that in episode 317, if you feel like going back and listening. Um, but Preacher has has left his, his dubious ministry, and these days he is painting his prophetic visions in an idyllic little Bob Ross cabin surrounded by happy trees. And over the time he's been here, he's completed a shit ton of paintings, and two of them, the first one he did, and the most recent one, in fact, turn out to be halves of a whole. They're Bishop and Shard over a burning cityscape, fleeing the same hound we saw X-Factor take on. But what he can't tell is whether they're victims of the destruction that they're, they're around, or they're its cause. Now, he's met Bishop before. Bishop showed up in that, that 1995 annual, but... He doesn't recognize Shard, and what he really can't tell is whether Bishop and this mysterious woman he's with are victims of the destruction in the rest of the painting, or possibly its cause. Do you think it's this complicated for our artist David Wynn when he makes those diptych and triptych pictures for crossovers that we cover? Is it this dark and dramatic? I think he generally plans on those being connected images. Oh, so uh, no, no prophecies as far as we know? As far as we know. Well, Preacher's work here is done, and so he burns down the cabin and leaves to go and try to prevent the future. Damn it, Preacher, Oregon's very dry right now. Don't start fires. Well, no sooner has he set this fire than his cabin is raided by the same shady government troops who broke into X-Factor's headquarters um, that we covered in, in the story in uh, 338 in the previous episode. Now, these guys salvage a whole, whole bunch of complete or partial paintings. We also learn here that what they were after in that X-Factor story was the plans for Forge's mutant power neutralizer gun, which fits a lot once we learn who they are. Ooh, that's bad news. 
It's very bad news, yeah. I mean, it led to some great storm stories like Life Death, but still bad news. Now, their boss wants both Shard and Preacher in custody and orders the troops to unleash the Hound. So let's talk a little bit about Hounds. Now, we originally saw Hounds in context of Earth 811. That's the dark future specifically of the Days of Future Past timeline. This is the timeline that Rachel Summers comes from, and in that timeline, she and a number of other mutants were brainwashed and modified to hunt renegade mutants um, at the command of a guy named Ahab, who we've found out is a future alternate version of a dude named Rory Campbell, who these days is hanging out with Excalibur. I'm sorry, that was a coherent sentence, but it really doesn't feel like it should have been. I mean, we're on episode number 339 of this podcast. If the listeners aren't used to sentences like that by now, then I don't know what to say. Anyway, the Ahab part is is largely incidental. What's important here is that hounds in that timeline were mutants who were brainwashed and forced to hunt other mutants. Now, this hound is a little bit different. He almost killed Mystique a while ago, and then X-Factor fought him in issue 123, and he is a modified mutant whose programming has gotten pretty fucked up, to the point that I'm actually really surprised that he's still in the field at all. Yeah, I think he was scheduled to be destroyed by his bosses the last time he appeared, but uh, apparently not. Well, meanwhile in Vegas, Storm and Bishop are on their way to a very important rendezvous. But I love the way they're getting there! Like, okay, it makes sense for a flying character to carry a non-flying character, but, but Storm is carrying Bishop in her arms like he's a big baby, and like she has her knee up to rest his bum on, and it's adorable! I mean, how else would you think that she'd carry him, like... Over her shoulder? I don't know. But it's cute, is my point. Honestly, this is probably a good way to carry people, because a lot of the time, you just see flyers carrying their non-flying teammates by their arms, like they're clasping hands, and that would wrench your arm out of its socket immediately. Oh yeah, yeah. Not a great idea. We also learn in a bit here that Bishop learned the song Luck Be a Lady as, quote, an ancient hymn, end quote. And I love that. I, I, I just, I love his General Diana Warrior Princess view of the present, this, his, his sort of weird anachronistic filtered through lost history sense of things. But I particularly love the idea of luck be a lady as a hymn. Now I'm just thinking about it done as like a happy birthday-esque solemn dirge. <laughs> luck be a lady tonight. So, as the narration is mentioning the Gregorian chant, Luck Be a Lady Tonight, it also talks about how 50 years from now, Bishop will be born, and 20 years after that, he'll join the XSE. But then we see a flashback of him in 2013, and given that this comic came out in 1996, and Marvel tends to be roughly in real time even though that doesn't make any sense— This makes even less sense. I I get that he was around for Days of Future Past, and that was specifically in 2013, but you can't have both. I feel like if you're going to list one date or one number of years, you kind of can't list the other right next to it if it's an immediate direct contradiction. I want to break in at this point um, for a a bit of meta thing. I am sorry if you were hearing a bunch of, like, clicks from my, my side. That's the sound of rain hitting a metal window unit, and there's no way for me to filter it out. I mean, it could be worse. It could be a Miss America pageant group of contestants. Uh, That was Miss New York. Oh, okay. Oh, speaking of, did you hear that the first uh, trans woman just won one of those contests in some state? I forget which state. Nevada. Yeah, well, good for her. I mean, I guess beauty contests are kind of weird, but nonetheless, good for her. Well, 
Anyway, the timing may not make sense, but we do get some more visions of the Bishop siblings as kids hanging out with their mentor slash protector, Hancock, and talking about what that part of the timeline is like. So we, we see, too, who they're here to meet. And this that's because Bishop's been to Vegas before, and he's coming back, too, specifically to meet up with Shard, who's, who's showing up with Wildchild. I love that Wildchild plays hooky from X-Factor and yoinks Shard's Holomatrix projector bracelet just to be nice to the girl he likes. I don't know, maybe he fucked up so bad with his ex-Aurora that now he's, like, an extra good boyfriend? Bishop at this point has seen Shard die repeatedly, and he's pretty much convinced himself that she's gone for good. This Shard, as she insists on calling herself, is nothing more than a fading memory yet to be born. Tomorrow's videotape today, for all intents and purposes. Ouch. And Shard is so excited to see Bishop, and is just talking about how, hey, everything is going to be great, she was worried, but she knows it, and there's this pair of panels as she says, But just one look in your eyes and... and... oh. And she just turns away, and the despair on her holographic face is just palpable. And I should say, she's still drawn at this point the way she has been for a while, with those fuzzy, inked lines and desaturated colors that make it very clear she's a hologram. And somehow that just makes it even more tragic just to see that level of emotion on her face. And she she manages to get to him uh, via another flashback, this time to the fight that led them as kids to be recruited by the XSE, which leads Bishop to ask... Why did you bring us to this, of all places? I've made a conscious decision, difficult as it's been, to avoid all associations with the tomorrow we, I, came from, trying to build another life for myself today, to accept this time which traps me. You're fighting to figure out who you are here and now, big brother. I'm fighting to figure out what I am. And they start to maybe kind of, sort of, tentatively start to connect, to reconcile, to understand each other. But they're interrupted because Preacher is watching from a tree. Now, while fleeing, he has managed to give himself a tattoo of his painting of Bishop and Shard. But instead of doing it like somewhere that he could get to easily, he's done it on one of his shoulders, which strikes me as a bizarre and counterintuitive choice. Yeah, I mean, that's a cool place for a tattoo. That's where my second tattoo was, but uh, the angles, that would be so challenging. I guess he is a very good artist. I guess. And no sooner has he dropped down from the tree than the hound attacks. So sometimes we talk about how Howard Mackey's narration, and for that matter, Terry Kavanaugh's narration, can be a little plain, but I love the description of the way the Bishop siblings detect and respond to this attack. A faint taste of ozone in the air. The telltale scent of an ionized cloaking field in transition, to those with a nose to know, is just enough warning for reflexes cultivated in a harsher, crueler world to come. Cool. Yeah, I love that bit. And the Hound immediately takes out Shard. Now... What are Storm and Wildchild up to while Bishop and Shard are having their, their uh, board of reunion? 
they're hanging out, killing time in a casino, using an image inducer so that Wildchild looks a little more normal, and I don't know, maybe so that Storm doesn't look quite so impressive? I mean, she usually stands out. I mean, part of it, I think, is so that neither of them looks like they're in a superhero costume. Eh, there is that. There is that. So I didn't realize they were supposed to be using an image inducer at first, and I thought that this was just another egregious case of Wild Child complaining about his appearance while being drawn even more conventionally handsome than usual. <laughs> right. Well, Storm and Wildchild eventually do go back to check on their friends and find a scene of violence. They find Bishop alone and unconscious. So this is really bad news, because anyone who's got Shard, and especially anyone who's got Preacher and Shard, means big trouble, because those two are both a direct line to the future. So they've got them both. We don't know immediately what they've done with Preacher. We'll find that out a little bit later, but Shard is scheduled to be depixelated. This is a soft euphemism for stripping her memory and doing the electronic equivalent of vivisecting her. Wait, depixelated? So does that make you more or less pixelated? Like, are they just going to improve her graphics? Are they going to use some anti-aliasing? So, I know you're joking, but ironically, that's kind of how it turns out. Bishop and company break in, they immediately end up fighting the Hound, and Shard, and Shard ends up destroying the gauntlet with her projector to keep the baddies out of her memory um, of the future. With her last bit of cohesion, tells Bishop. Nowhere left to hang my photons now, bro. Just get the others out alive while you still can. That's an order, field chief. The danger dies with me. And it's so bittersweet because that level of maturity, of self-sacrifice, of prioritizing the mission, that's what convinces Bishop that this really is his sister. Fortunately, she shows back up on the plane, and now somehow she's fine without a projector, so that's cool. And I love the way this is visually portrayed. Like, we mentioned that Shard is always drawn when she's in her holo form, which is all the time up until this point, except in flashbacks, with that kind of desaturated coloring, with that fuzzy inking. And so when she comes around the corner and is just drawn like a normal comics character, like, yes, we have mountains of narration telling us about what's going on and dialogue, but that visual is what hits first. And there's just that sense of just relief that she's around at all, but also joy that, holy crap, is she alive now? If she's not alive, she's much closer than she was before, or at least much more independently sustained. Now, as for Preacher, the shadowy organization has set him up with a brand new idyllic Bob Ross cabin, where he is busily painting Onslaught, just in time to get a final cameo of Bastion to show up to tease Operation Zero Tolerance. Like, choose an event. Come on. So that's the thing. There's some debate as to just when the hell this issue is supposed to take place, because based on this scene, it's clearly supposed to be leading up to the Onslaught crossover. Like, Preacher's a guy that sees the future, so presumably the heroes facing off against Onslaught, which is what he's drawing, like, hasn't happened yet. But at the same time, in X-Factor, Shard doesn't show up as de-hologrammed until after the Onslaught event. So are we covering this at the right time? I mean... Really, there is no right time. The time is what we decree it to be. Legit. And what our listeners decree is that they've got questions. Crooked Knight asks on Tumblr, One of my favorite things about the current X-Men era is that every team is supposed to have a job on Krakoa or away from but in service of Krakoa. Given that, are there any other jobs or niches for a team that you'd like to see explored? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there is one thing I thought of first, and there's a little bit of this in Teeny Howard's excellent X-Corp, but I would love to see a book specifically focused on mutant outreach and PR for Krakoa, you know, like changing human hearts and minds, not just through commerce like we see in Marauders or through manipulation like we see in, well, a lot of the books, but uh, I guess through a more subtle manipulation. I think that could especially be interesting in the context of mutants as a whole being so isolationist but still caring about their image. I'd like to see more of mutants who choose not to live on Krakoa. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Specifically, I was thinking it would be cool to see a book about a faction of mutants who are holding on to Xavier's old dream of interacting with and coexisting with humanity. Not necessarily like antagonists to Krakoa, but maybe like a similar feel to the revolutionary era Cyclops run of Uncanny X-Men, where he was separate doing his own thing from the official school. I also just want Leah Williams and David Baldion's X-Factor back. Its last issue came out today as we were recording this, and it had such a good premise. Detectives working with the five to confirm whether mutants were dead or not before they could be resurrected. And it was also just so, so good. Listeners, if you haven't had a chance, you've got to pick up that series. It's amazing. What about you, Jay? I mean, as I said, I'd like to see more about mutants who choose not to live on Krakoa. Krakoa, as a, as a mutant paradise, as a mutant utopia, is a really cool concept, but it's a concept built on the premise that mutants in general will be fine with basically leaving off their prior lives and relationships in a lot of ways. And I have to think that there'd be a pretty substantial segment of the population who wasn't, that wasn't down with that. So I'd like to see more in terms of, of both sort of what Krakoa's relationship is to that and what position that puts those mutants in. Absolutely. I would, that would be phenomenal. I mean, we have a ton of X books right now, but Marvel just seems to keep making more. So, uh, yes, Marvel, there are some free premises that you probably can't use for legal reasons because we said them. An anonymous listener, oh boy, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, with all the recent discourse about Batman not being allowed to, you know, is there any evidence of X-Men doing it? Uh, Jay, maybe we should explain what this anonymous listener is referring to. Recently, it was leaked that somebody in some kind of high position had said that it was not permissible to believe in context of the Harley Quinn cartoon insinuate that Batman uh, went down on Catwoman. Uh, Specifically used the phrase, heroes don't do that, which mostly just led to a lot of really, really um, wholesome and cheerful mockery on social media. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's just one of those very, like, our modern time bits of, I guess, this is a thing we're talking about. You know, we've been making jokes about Mad Men's sex life for as long as I can remember, so pff, really just more of the same. Um, as far as the X-Men, yes, there is absolutely canonical evidence that X-Men perform cunnilingus. Um, I do not recall the specific issue number, but it's the one that starts with Cyclops painting Emma's toenails. Um, that said, seriously, I am pretty sure the X-Men fuck more and in more varied configurations than any other superheroes. They are just the horny as fuck team. Like, Krakoa is basically horny jail. <laughs> pretty much. So I don't know that there's canonical evidence, um, but I'm pretty sure there's got to be somewhere. Gambit and Rogue, at the times they've been able to touch, I'm pretty sure that's like 90% cunnilingus. Not 100%, but probably about 90%. Thank you for sharing. Totally. Speaking of sharing, 
So Dave Cockrum is the artist who created many of the all-new, all-different X-Men. Uh, he is sadly not with us anymore, but in the light of the in light of this controversy, his son uh, did release some Dave Cockrum art that had not been released before, which was two panels of a Nightcrawler doing exactly that to a Storm who seemed to really be enjoying herself. So not exactly canon, but it was drawn by the artist who came up with those characters, so closer than it could be. I will also 100% accept that. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, too. I can't believe we're not doing sexy thanks this episode. It's been a long week, and I'm very tired. Um, no, but fair Take them as read, and definitely about Conolingus. What we do have, however, is a few words from the angry Clermontian narrator. Oh, Suzanne Morgan. You tried. I mean, you didn't try very hard, and you didn't try particularly effectively, but you could at least, like, a C-minus or so for effort. Still, yeah, it could be worse. You could be Jessie Adkins, who tried her little heart out. Well, guess we all know where that one went. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the hall monitors of the future come to the fore as we cover the XSE miniseries. Is Luck be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck, if you've ever been a lady to begin with Luck, be a lady tonight Luck, be a lady tonight